Welcome to The Long Take Review, a film podcast with one eye always on the Oscar race. I'm your host, Jen Subchakjai Bankard, and I'm here today with everyone's favorite neighborhood podcaster, <laughs> Greg Cass. How's it going, Greg? Uh, with great podcasting comes a lack of preparation. I don't know. I, I have nothing. I'm good. How are you? I'm so excited to talk about this movie, so I'm in a good mood. I'm I'm excited too. Uh, as you can guess, we're we're talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse today. Uh, it just swung into theaters this past weekend. Yeah, it made a ton of money too. Yes, box office going bananas, uh, which is great to see. Uh, I was a little worried. I'm like, it would be really sad if by the end of the summer, Super Mario Brothers had the huge box office numbers, and then this only had like okay box office numbers. I'm glad mm. to see that it's already trending uh, to to do really well. Uh, first, we want to do our usual movie news check-in. So, Greg, you have any news post-can? Uh, any new trailers or just anything that's going on in your movie <laughs> life? Uh, it was so great listening to UMPT catch up on Can News. I went through every single step of the Dial of Destiny emotions with you and ended up in a good place, thanks to both of you, where it's like, you know what? It was the wrong audience. It was the wrong rollout. But if it's Force Awakens good, I'm good, right? So so I, I have some hope still uh, with that. Other than that, I mean, you shared it on social media. What about this picture of Anthony Mackie with Harrison Ford? How great did that look? And how fun will it be to see those two interacting? This is for, of course, Captain America, New World. Or there's a new title. Fill us in. Right. Yes, it was, which I didn't even remember what the title was before, to be honest. I just thought it was Captain America 4. So Captain America 4, which was originally titled New World Order, which I can see why they wanted to workshop that, uh, is now called Brave New World, which, you know, is stealing from <laughs> something else. But like, well, it's fine. It's, I guess, a little bit better. Uh, but yeah, I, I, this just popped up. This still just popped up on my social media feed and completely took me by surprise. Because honestly, mm -hmm. I had totally forgotten that, that we were getting a Captain America 4 at some point. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much stuff on the Marvel slate now that it's easy to kind of forget what's coming up. Uh, and But this movie slated for, I believe, 2024 uh, so it's you know it's not that far down the down the way and i believe the caption for anthony mackety was when harrison ford tells you how to like act in a scene you listen or something like that <laughs> which is delightful <laughs> and so just the idea of harrison ford mentoring the next generation of action stars potentially may just made me really happy right because he you know we love him so much this is a very pro harrison ford podcast overall i think that's right and i mean it's it's a tricky thing because he's taking over um for William Hurt's character yes. um, because uh, unfortunately William Hurt passed. So so he's going to be Ro Thunderbolt Ross. Who knows if he's general or vice president or I think Thunderbolt becomes president at some points in, in canon. So we'll have to see where he's at in that story. So, um, you know, you can't do better than getting Harrison in your your franchise. I also... Anthony Mackie is so charismatic and fun. Like if you see him on a talk show, it's it's kind of laugh a minute. I'm really excited to see those two energies play off each other. And I think Harrison proved in um, shrinking. I can say Harrison because he's my good friend. Uh, he proved in shrinking that he's got chops for comedy and he just doesn't get to show them off that often. So um, I'm really excited to see hopefully a little bit more playful side to him in this movie. But always keeping expectations low, though. Yeah, and I, I was a big fan of William Hurt playing uh, Thunderbolt Ross. You know, his performance was great. But I am kind of looking forward to the less serious version of that character, like the kind of grumpy, snarky version that I'm I'm almost sure Harrison Ford will probably play. Like, if, if they let him. I hope they let him. I hope they let him do more of a comedic performance. 
because I think that would be really fun. And, you know, he has to be sticking around for a while because we're headed towards a Thunderbolts movie. So presumably, right. you know, if it's it's named after his character, he'll be <laughs> he'll be a re- at least around for another movie. So, so yeah, that was that was really fun to see. And in more serious news, I think I will uh, just want to give a quick update on the writer's strike. So, you know, other guilds have now kind of gotten in the mix. Uh, the DGA, the Directors Guild, actually just reached a deal. And, you know, a lot of people online that I follow, who are, you know, especially people who are in the WGA, have not been particularly happy about this, I think, because they're kind of like, oh, great. Glad that all of our hard work is now getting you a good deal. <laughs> and we still yeah. haven't made, made any progress. But that may soon change because SAG-AFTRA, the Actors Guild, which is huge. I think anytime I listen to any sort of Oscar punditry, people always make the argument that SAG, is, the actors are the biggest branch in the Academy. Right. So they have the kind of the biggest voting influence potentially, or like SAG isn't a good indicator or whatever. And so I feel like if SAG after a goes on strike, which they just approved to go on strike, they haven't actually gone on strike yet, but they, they have gotten, they've gotten all their ducks in a row. If they, if they choose to go on strike, they can. So, you know, if they get in the mix to kind of help the WGA and they kind of team up, I think that could be really powerful to turn the tide. Well, and and not to disrespect writers at all, because I think, you know, as as you have rightly pointed out on this podcast, everything flows from the writing. And when something is bad, it's usually the writing is a significant component of that um, uh, quantum of solace. Uh, so I I do think, however, though, when SAG and uh, SAG-AFTRA goes on strike, those are the faces people recognize. So if you go from a mob of writers room, very talented, but kind of anonymous writers on the street to, oh, here are the biggest names in Hollywood, not doing any PR and on the street holding a sign. I think people are going to pay more attention. I saw the, this is just using myself as an example. I saw the strike a vote news direct from Mark Hamill, right? And there are no kind of, comedy writers or draw any kind of writers that have the kind of presence of like your main movie stars. Um, and it makes me, you know, this is an award show podcast. It makes me think of the SAG awards, how the opening of that is always uh, my name is blank and I am an actor and just the pride they take in being guild members, not just being actors, but being members of the union, I think means they're going to be, wholly solid wholly strong in in solidarity and not um have any scabs so you know it's going to be interesting i'm i'm starting to worry about next summer's movies cuz these are the ones that are going to need the rewrites and the touch-ups that they might not be able to get seemingly because this is going into fall yeah and considering where we are right now with the strike and with the negotiations it it is looking more and more like this is going to this is like a longer thing that's going to eventually have a big ripple effect on on the slate for next year and the year after and uh so yeah so you know obviously we support the writers and we we want to make sure if anyone's looking for more information about the writer strike there's a podcast called ologies uh that shout out to my neighbor and friend colby uh, who I actually don't know if he listens to this. Uh, he's a big <laughs> podcast listener, though. Um, the, the, he he recommended this podcast called Ologies, and basically every episode kind of interviews or kind of tackles a different ology, like a, a different study or a different. They interview a different expert. It's a really cool podcast because it covers mm-hmm. a lot of um, different topics. But you know the the host of that 
Allie Ward, I think her name is, uh, went to the picket line and interviewed a bunch of like tons and tons of people on the picket line and and then really did a great job of breaking down what what everything means and kind of what's at stake and like what the problem is and what what each side is kind of hoping for. And and, and it's a really yeah. So if you're looking to understand kind of what's going on with the writer strike, I would highly recommend listening to that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I. I think I just want to express my, uh, you know, hope that this works out, not just, you know, we love movies, we love television, we want this entertainment, but these people do deserve a living wage. And the fact that, you know, everything is now becoming the world of streaming and the fact that these models uh, for compensation don't even account for it is it's just silly. And so, um, you know, it's it was funny. I was I was recently down in uh, Orlando at Disney World and it's like down there you want to root for Disney so hard because the fight there in with governor DeSantis and you know every time you see a Disney pride display you're like yeah stick it to Florida uh but then you're like oh I'm rooting for the one of the giant studios that's ripping off the creatives who help create these characters that are now rides and costumes and parade floats and so on so so all that is to say you know I think our enthusiasm for the movies can make us forget that it is show business and we need to remember that that means the artists and the creatives really need to be compensated yeah, for sure. And I think Ann Thompson from IndieWire has said that she feels like it's going to take a big industry leader like Disney mm. to kind of break the wall, like break, break the barrier and sort of be the leader of, in the negotiations. And so far, it doesn't seem like that's happening. So um, which is interesting, also interesting, because I think on the, the watch with um, Andy Greenwald and Chris Ryan, they were talking about how, and I also on filmcast, like I, I don't know, I've listened to too many podcasts. <laughs> Several podcasts I've listened to have really discussed how the the ranking of villains in the in the strike, mm. and how Disney actually is pretty far down. Like they've managed from a PR perspective to kind of skate through this without really becoming the bad guy. The Warner Brothers executive, Dave. Oh yeah, Dave, he like he's. <laughs> I think he's at the top of the list the most wanted list because he had the commencement speech where people were protesting and just, and he went on some kind of like Mediterranean cruise or like, or through some party <laughs> did something that just did not look good in the midst of all this. Um, so is his name David. Yeah. That was up here in town. So, so for listeners that don't know, so that was at BU was his commencement address. Oh, and right. I heard in advance. Um, I am technically a BU alumnus because they bought my undergrad school. So I I was on a lot of the kind of spin emails about why this was still an important and it was it was gross. Uh, and so um, you know, my two cents mean less than nothing to BU because I'm not really an alumnus from there and I would never donate and have never donated. Um, but at the same time, it was like really upsetting that in the middle of that strike, they just go with him as the commencement speaker. And, and then what he said in the midst of all that context was pretty. Yeah, I think so. I think the argument was that he planned it so long ago before all this. But it's like, yeah, come on, you pivot, you pivot for this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's David. Uh, Zaslov. I, I couldn't remember his yeah. last name. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, that's the that's a that was a pretty meaty update. I I, I <laughs> forgot that there was so much to talk about there. I'm gonna try a segue here across the Spider Verse. I feel like would not have been made and would not have been as successful without writers. That's mm -hmm. one of my favorite things about it is its screenplay. So yeah, you know, we're gonna switch over to talking about across the across the Spider Verse. We'll start with the short take. So, Greg, what were your overall impressions? What's your short take on Spider-Verse? I think the original uh, Into the Spider-Verse set a new bar for animated films uh, in the quality of the animation and the um, 
and a new bar for superhero movies. So my expectations were sky high uh, walking into this. I will say I, I went twice and I would say it's not that I was let down the first time, but my expectations were a little too high. Um, but after the second viewing, I bumped up my review to four and a half stars on Letterboxd. This is a great movie. It works for kids. It works even better for adults. Um, and truly, I think I think other superhero movies like I don't know something about multiversal storytelling coming out next week are in serious, serious trouble because nothing's going to look good compared to this. That's how good it is. So, yeah, absolute I, winner of a movie. I think one of our our favorite podcasts the big picture from the ringer Mm. they i don't know if you you had a chance to listen to their episode on this but they they kept talking about that other multiverse movie because i think they're under (laughs) embargo still um because it hasn't come out yet but i'm pretty sure they're talking about the flash and so that's it that's interesting how this is kind of plugging in to the the hype cycle for that film because you know if you even if you listen to i think pt and i did a movie hype for the year we kind of were in an argument about like, I'm like, it could be really good. Tom Cruise says it's really good. And so, <laughs> um, so I think this definitely sort of put that into context to be like, oh, it's not, it might be good, but it's not Spider-Verse good uh, because people are, people who have seen both movies now kind of seem to be like, oh yeah, no, it's not even close. Yeah. So my, my overall impression, actually it's interesting because I had the opposite, I think experience to you where because this was a sequel, I had really lowered my expectations. I was like, there's Mm. no way because the first one is so good. There's no way as a sequel, this could even get live up to that. Right. So I was prepared to be like, it's probably going to be enjoyable. I'm going to have a good time, but it's, it's not really going to kind of create that light, recreate that lightning in the bottle. And I, I think because of that, I had the opposite effect. I was five stars coming out of the theater from, I've only had a chance to see it once, but I was like, I was like, I had a transcendent experience. I went to go see it by myself, taking a cue from you. And I, you know, did my good deed at the theater where I was clearly seated in a group of friends and I offered Mm. to move so that they could sit together and they were really appreciative. And like, they offered to buy, buy me a beer. And I was like, no, no, like, like it's fine. I'm by myself. This does not affect (laughs) my life in any way. If I'm sitting four seats that way. Uh, And in fact, I actually ended up with a better seat because I was more in the middle. (laughs) Nice. Well, and and Um, your experience was better by not being in the middle of all these people who'd be shouting across you too. (laughs) That's true too. I I wasn't going to say that, but I was like, you know, you're going to be reaching across me to talk to each other or like looking at each other. So like, this is just better if I remove myself from the situation. So, um, so that, that was fun. And then I had, I I had bought my first souvenir popcorn bucket was an impulse buy when I got to the concession stand and the cup. Oh, I really, I should have brought it up here. It's downstairs in my kitchen because I've reused it several times now (laughs) just to eat popcorn at home. To sort nice. of justify the justify the twenty six dollars that I spent on it, because I was like, <laughs> "How do I get the popcorn bucket?" And the guy was like, "It's twenty six dollars. Is that okay?" And I'm like, "Sure." <laughs> <laughs> um, i did that at love and thunder my son wanted the uh the thor's hammer and i was like i'll get oh. it for him and then they were like 50 dollars, please i'm like Whoa. but uh he loves it so and that we, that stuff we'll is usually made okay. from like the cheapest plastic so it's like yeah yeah <laughs> yeah if they had said 50 i would be like no way um yeah. but yeah my the cup actually has like a uh, a tiny little Miles Morales on top, like a like a Ooh, nice. Not not I wouldn't call it action figure. It's not nowhere near action figure size, even like a three mm-hmm. quarter, you know, three quarters. But like it's you know, it's like a little mini fig. 
of Miles Morales on top. That's very cool. And it has a, a hole for the straw. I've, I've spent already too much time talking about this. <laughs> I think I'm going to stop now. Um, this is no longer a short take. This is a long take on my cup and popcorn bucket. I don't know how we ended up here. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, I was, I thought this film was transcendent. I'm, I'm, I need to see it again, but I'm almost ready to say that it's, surpa- it in a lot of ways surpassed the original wow. for me, which I know is like a lot. Um, but I just feel like, it did the thing of going bigger in a way that people expect a sequel to and kind of progressing from the original while not kind of sacrificing the integrity of the quality. And like, I just thought that was a really impressive high wire act that I was just shocked that they pulled it off. So, so that's, I'm on, I'm, I'm really riding high on this movie (laughs) and we'll talk later about how reasonable that is compared to what other people are saying. Uh, but yeah, so now we want to, because we are still in the spoiler-free territory, before we move into spoiler mode, I want to just give a little bit out there for folks who haven't had a chance to see it, right? Because it, it hasn't been out for that long. You know, some people want to see it, but haven't had a chance to. But who do we think should be checking out this movie? Like, who is the audience? And obviously, since it is a, a Marvel movie, a superhero movie, you know, that the conversation about that changes a little bit. So, you know, does this have, besides people who are like in for any superhero movie or in for any Marvel movie, no matter what, like who is watching this movie, do you think? Well, so I uh, think of this question a lot in the context of my wife, who was a great sport, came to a lot of early Marvel movies, but I think somewhere it was after Guardians 1, but before Guardians 2 was like, I'm done. Like I've had my fill and I don't really enjoy these anymore. And, and since then, as you alluded to, I, I just go by myself and I have a great time. And yet she did see uh, the first one of these and loved it um, and gave it a big review. So I think when I'm thinking about who should see this movie, I, I think it's a no brainer. You have to have seen the first one. I, this might be incomprehensible if you haven't seen the, the first into the spider verse, but I do think there's a lane here where the quality of the animation and the storytelling is so good that it can have a broader appeal to somebody i i you know i i just use my wife as the example i think most marvel fans have somebody like that in their life now where it's like somebody who just got tired of it all and and i respect it even though it's not me i still go to everything but um i understand people who have this fatigue that's set in and so i think if you have somebody like that in your life especially if you want to hook them again i think this is a good chance to to draw somebody like that in and should you have seen what else should you have seen? Is this for, I mean, if somebody went to um, no way home and loved it, absolutely. Um, you know, if you're a fan of the, the Spider-Man movies separate from the MCU or they're all kind of the MCU now, but who knows? Um, I think, I think there's a good chance to like that. Uh, and the last category I would put out there is just animation fans. Um, yeah. I mean, the first Spider-Verse has already had so many imitators that there's no way this one doesn't, advance that and get just a good uh, you know i i've heard it said that star wars visions has been kind of reinvigorating some of these international animation studios but i think spider-verse is the most dynamic force in animation of recent years and and i hope to see good imitations and also just these creators do more projects like it absolutely and i think and to add on to your what should people have seen beforehand or what the access point to this movie is the thing I loved about this movie is it's chock full of Spider-Man references for mm. the people who have read all the Spider-Man comics and do know all the different kind of phases of Spider-Man canon. But at the same time, if you don't, cause I, I will admit like I, I'm a comic book reader, but I think Spider-Man is probably my biggest blind spot, honestly, in terms mm. of like, I haven't really read a lot of Spider-Man only comics. And 
so a lot of these I registered as like, oh, that's a different Spider-Man. That must be from something. People were reacting to this like it's from something. <laughs> but it, it didn't matter at all that I didn't know who it was, like who, what that particular Spider-Man was, right? Like it just kind of washed over me um, yeah. in a way. And it's so, yeah, you do not need to kind of be steeped in Spider-Man lore or know a ton about Spider-Man even. You just need to know the basic character beats of of a of a of like a classic spider-man to kind of really get into this movie i think which is great yeah i i think if anybody who you know i think a lot of high schoolers get into spider-man even if they're not comic book people and so if you were a high schooler when we were it was toby mcguire or the next round was andrew garfield and then you know like our students these days i, I had a student who took my superhero class purely out of love for tom holland they didn't even know I was like teaching uh, some Spider-Man at all. They're just like, I love Tom Holland. I'm here for Tom Holland uh, content. And so I do think there's a generation right now that, you know, uh, I think that could be a little bit of crushes on Tom Holland. He's charming too. But it's like, you know, these stories when done well speak to teenagers. Mm. And so I think anybody who's gone through that cycle of I'm a teenager and oh look so's Peter Parker or Miles Morales I think we'll find enough here to really enjoy it yeah that's a great that's a great point and I think I've heard several critics specifically comment on how this film you know along with the the previous one does the coming of age part so well and then it's really, yeah, it handles it handles the sort of awkwardness and the stress of being a teenager really well, uh, which I would argue that that the Tom Holland Spider-Man films do, but not like this, not with as much nuance. It's more for mm. I feel like it's more for comedy of like of like Tom Holland being like, oh, no, like <laughs> how do how do I, I participate in my school field trip, but also save save uh, Paris or wherever it is that they are. Um, yeah. So, whereas this actually gets at the heart of kind of like the the sort of almost the kind of psychological impact of being a teenager and kind of what's going on. So, yeah. All right. So, I think we're ready to go. To are we ready to go to spoiler mode? Uh, only only thing I want to hit before you go into that, if you had to rank some Spider-Man movies. Oh, <laughs> if you I, asking you to rank every single one. So if you want to just rank the Spider-Men and you can count Miles Morales as, you know, a, a different version, kind of where, where are you at? Where would you place these in the context of all those other ones? Ooh, I don't, I feel like these are pretty, this is pretty high up now. Mm. Um, I think for me, the second Tobey Maguire movie is probably always going to is is it's going to be hard to knock that out of them. And but then there's also No Way Home, which was great. But like, I feel like No Way Home is a little bit of a cheat in this kind of situation because mm. it has more than one Spider-Man in it. <laughs> um, sorry, spoilers for No Way Home. I assume if you're listening to this, you've seen No Way Home. Uh, but yeah, it probably. Yeah, I think this is really hard. I've. But then it's also interesting, we'll talk about this later in the spoiler section, of like, Miles, it's not just Miles Morales, but it's Spider-Gwen, it's Gwen Stacy in this one, too. Yeah. So then it's like, if I'm factoring that, if if they come as a pair, <laughs> maybe I could cheat that way, then they would probably be number one. And then, and then yeah, cause just because like the Tobey Maguire ones came out right when I was, I was like, I feel like that had such a big influence on my love of superhero movies in general yeah it's that in those original x-men movies i think those are the two that kind of like really pushed me into that fandom but 
And yeah, it's hard because if I'm going just by the Spider-Men, the characterization or the performance, I feel like Andrew Garfield's high up there. Mm. If I take into account the movies that he was in, he drops down because <laughs> uh, those movies just are not very good. Like they're, <laughs> um, they're okay. They're not as bad as some people say they are, but they're True. but comparatively, they're just like they're not the plot. The plots uh, just don't really hold together that well. Um, and but they have really good people in them. Uh, and, and I love and, and Andrew Garfield in No Way Home specifically, mm. I would say would be high up on the list. Because I think he 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 probably had the most to kind of prove going into No Way Home, but and he and I so I think that's why he really brought it. But I think he walking out of No Way Home, he was actually my favorite Spider Man. Um, which again, huge spoilers for No Way Home. I just realized. Uh, maybe I'll, I mean they they started putting that in the commercials eventually. That's so true. You're, that's true. You're totally in the clear. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was a giant secret that opening night, which is what made that movie so fun. Um, yeah. I'll just say before I went to No Way Home, I was asked to rank my spider-man movies and i said into the spider-verse was the best one um yeah at that point um so i have no hesitation in saying i think these two together are probably the top of my list i share that love of toby mcguire i would say um toby mcguire was a great peter parker but didn't nail spider-man whereas andrew garfield mm. was a stronger spider-man and a as good if not slightly better peter parker so i think he he went out there and and it's so hard with the tom holland movies because he's great i have no complaints about tom holland but he's always overshadowed like it's like the tony stark and then nick fury and then then dr strange and and you know he he has a lot to do in those movies i'm not saying he does nothing but it's hard to think of those as like a spider-man movie and and maybe no way home it's better to say the movie with all the spider people in it right like all the all the peters in it um so he gets overshadowed shadowed there but um you know there's a question mark on whether his is, is continuing i think there's a contract negotiation that has to happen first but i'm i'm really curious to see if Sony takes it now and just says, you know what, let's try miles instead. Um, but um, I'm going to, I'll be the bold one. I'll put, I'll put these Spider-Verse movies. I think this is the best version of Spider-Man we have in movie theaters, at least. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm probably with you the more I think about it, but it's just hard because, yeah, and like, I think the only reason I'm hesitating is because it's so new. Like yeah. it, it seems weird that that would be the best um but yeah i'm i'm with you i'm with you and and i would say like for tom holland yeah i feel bad now that i didn't even mention tom holland when i was trying to rank (laughs) rank these because and i think it's it's for the reason that you said but it's also and i would say that like his performance of spider or his version of spider-man gets at the like plucky teenager Mm. part of the character the best because i feel like toby Aguirre, like he just even in his original movies he seems too old (laughs) <laughs> yep. and, and he's seems- barely in high school too right like right. he ends up being more college age spider-man and tom right. holland they really leaned into high school and right which way. which i think if we go back to a lot of the older comics or a lot of people i know who are really big spider-man comics fans point to tom holland as like yeah that feels this feels like a spider-man the spider-man from the comics that i know because he's like a actually like a more like a teenager than all the other ones um but i would agree with you that like I think that if I'm ranking Avengers, he's really high up on the list. I love him. And, you know, he, yeah. he had such a great dynamic group to, to the Avengers. Uh, but for his standalone movies, like, I'm not sure they really hold up for the reasons that you're talking about. But, yeah, I don't know. 
yeah. Now let's get into spoilers to talk about uh, why we might have those opinions. But I thought that would be a good fact just to throw to people who, you know, if there's somebody out there really debating whether they should go or not, unequivocally go have a great time. Buy the popcorn bucket. Clearly, we endorse the popcorn bucket. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I went to AMC, so I got a free poster. And I think they're doing that again oh, nice. this weekend. So uh, people should grab that. Um, it's huge. It's like a full-size poster, not like a oh, wow. tiny thing. So, they were, they were um, selling posters at, at – I, I went to Regal. Oh, okay. But they, they were selling them. They were selling them for charity. I shouldn't say that they were, like, oh, trying okay. to just make nice. an extra buck. That's a good but, thing to um, do. Yeah. But I, I definitely saw a bunch of especially younger people walking through the theater lobby being like posters. And they're like, they cost, I don't remember, it was like $10. And they're like, oh, they're like, oh. it's for charity. Oh, never mind. And oh. they like walked away because they're like, I just don't have $10. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah. As, yeah. as a teenager going to the movies already. <laughs> so, um, all right. So, yeah, we're going to spoiler mode. So if you have not seen, I mean, definitely, certainly if you have not seen Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, the new movie, do not go proceed if you i would say even if you haven't seen we're we're going to be spoiling the the original film as well the into the the spider verse so um cuz i think you have to you can't really talk about what happens in one without talking spoiling Agreed. what happens in we'll, the we'll other. lay off no way home but you should definitely have seen both spider verse yes, i'll stop talk spoiling no way home <laughs> this <laughs> point okay so i'm going to count down from 3 and if you're still listening spoilers are on you 3 2 1 and it's funny, the, the typical thing I've been doing is dropping a big spoiler bomb after I do that. But I'm not sure there is the equivalent of that in this film. Some twist, but no like death that defines the second half of the movie or something like that. Yeah. So I, I think right, right, right. Yeah. it's much more about the ride than it is any particular moments, in my opinion. For sure. So I think a good place to start probably would be, you know, we've really talked up this movie at this point and endorsed it heavily. But so what what exactly to you makes it so good for me? Top on that list has to be the visuals. Um, you know, I, I know you said you saw this in IMAX, I, I believe. Yes, I did. I, I saw it on Dolby Digital, which is not as big as IMAX, but is, you know, sharp and really uh, clear. And it was gorgeous. And the amount of energy and creativity they put into every single tiny spider person that's way back in a corner that you only see for two seconds um, is unbelievable. Um, it's, I mean, the the opening of this film for, I mean, again, somehow you didn't take the spoiler warning. Um, it starts with Gwen Stacy and we are in the Gwen Stacy universe, the Gwen we met in Into the Spider-Verse, but we hadn't been to her dimension. And I think if you can watch Spider-Verse, uh, the first Spider-Verse, and think she's just the same exact animation style as Miles. And it's, it's close, but what becomes clear in her segment is the backgrounds of where she is are just unbelievable. It's it's like a watercolor painting that reacts and shifts with the emotions. I read a lot of comics and, you know, there's kind of the bread and butter. Here's just weekly Spider-Man or whatever. But then there's the like, oh, we got an artist to come do a one shot and they totally redefine the, the house style so that you could see this new version of it. And they did that on film. And that first 20 minutes is, you know, jaw dropping. And then they do it like 50 more times by the end of the movie. It's just, I could, it blew me away. I could not believe the visuals of this film. I I would 100% agree. And I feel like even just the the short interlude with the, the Da Vinci vulture is like, it's just incredible. And they didn't need to do it. You know what I mean? That's the thing is like the plot of this movie works just fine. 
I think without the 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 flourishes and the animation. But wow, wow does does that make for, for in terms of a vis- like a a visceral experience at the theater makes a huge difference. And like, yeah, I think I've heard more than one critic refer to this as just a piece of art. It transcends even just being a movie. It's just, it's a form of art uh, because it's really mixing all these sounds and with purpose. That's the thing. It's like, it does, it's not gimmicky. Mm -hmm. I think like it could easily be gimmicky. And I think people who are less warm on these movies, the Spider-Verse movies, I think that's why they, it's because they feel that way. They feel like, oh, it's like too, it's too hyperactive and Mm -hmm. too like, changing all the time just to just for the sake of changing but i don't see it that way at all the animations the changes in style serve the mood and sort of the storytelling in a way that i think is very valuable and not and not just like just for show i think um though it does as you said looks amazing do you have a favorite um world like we're going to talk about your favorite spider spider people in a minute but like um like a place we actually visited not just like a, a spider person who represented it uh, i really liked uh Spider-Man India's uh, Mumbatten, um, which, you know, another thing I just loved about this movie, they like could have paused and explained a really long explanation of how Manhattan became Mumbai and blah, 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 blah. And like, and, but they were like, nah, don't bother this dimension. Spider-Man is in Mumbatten and it's half New York, half Mumbai. And it's awesome. And they kind of make a few jokes around the edges of who he is, but it's mostly like, it's just, I'm an equal spider person to you all. And this is the way it, it works in my dimension. So uh, he was a ton of fun. Um, actually it took a second viewing. He rattles off like 50 jokes in his opening speech. And it took the second viewing to really catch a, a few of the more subtle ones, but they, it, he was a lot of fun. How about you? Or sorry, not just him, but that place was a lot of fun. Where, where did you like going? Yeah, that place was a lot of fun. And it, it, it felt so rich in terms of like the amount of detail. Uh, something something that I've heard about other representation. Oh, maybe it's Star Wars Visions. The the creator, the Studio 88 that created the um, Bandits of Golag. We're really, we're really off the, the rails here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but but the those the 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 Indian animators for for that short mm. in Star Wars Visions, which you haven't seen, please, you should definitely check out. If especially if you're like on board with this movie, yeah. I feel like animation fans, absolutely. Yes, yeah. But they they talked about how they really had to push for the budget for all the background characters because they're like it's not it's not like India if it's not super crowded. And I feel like this also had that same feel of like it, it felt so alive as a place. Because there was so it's such a high degree of detail in the background, uh, yeah. So yeah, that that one's pretty high up for me. Um, I think in terms of a place, I thought they did the. I mean, yeah, I already mentioned the the sort of Renaissance vulture. <laughs> I thought that I thought that trans being transported to that world was really yeah. fun because it wasn't just they took him out of the world. We went back. We saw like what it was like in there uh and they really committed to it 100 percent in terms of like what it looked like um so i really like that probably if i had to really choose it's probably the painterly style of uh, gwen yeah. stacy's I, i'd already talked enough about that but that might be my favorite too like yeah it's gorgeous and just so original and i i can't i mean i'm not an expert on animation but it had to be really work intensive like to have the background shifting i mean 
traditional 2d animation the whole point is you know where you'd see bugs bunny run through the same room five times it's because it's really hard to to animate and you want to repeat that effort and frame by frame everything was shifting in that world and it's it's just really stunning so absolutely yeah that's the thing is like to animate spider-man just to inherently because of if someone has spider-man powers all the things they can do, all the swinging, all the jumping, all the sticking, all the defying of physics, like from an animation perspective, that alone makes it really high degree of difficulty, I think. Um, and I thought it did so well. Like, I think anytime there was a character was swinging or we were kind of moving from one place to the next, any fight scene or anything like that, it felt so dynamic and had such depth mm-hmm. that it was, I, I don't know, it was just incredible. In, in the first Spider-Man, again, I'm, I'm just going to admit, I'm talking out of my depth on animation, but as I understand it, in the first Spider-Verse, the, one of the innovative things they did is remove frames in the kind of dynamic motion so that it appeared more like a comic book, especially in moments of intense action. And there were a couple other effects that they kind of originated there that, that reinforced that. I, the way the the kind of characters would have that newsprint kind of um, separation of colors a little like there's a little bleed on them, even though they're obviously all created in there. And those effects made it feel like a comic book. And I think they continued that here. But I'm going to transition over to favorite spider hero. And I will say my favorite was Hobie Brown, uh, spider punk, uh, played beautifully by Daniel Kaluuya getting to use his actual accent, which just was amazing. Um, uh, And what I just read about his animation is his, uh, the spider punk is given a, I think a zine aesthetic would be the best way to, to summarize it. And so that his different elements all often they shift my, my son, when he and I went, was like, why does spider punks keep changing colors? And I'm like, well, it's a little hard to, you know what a zine is kid. Uh, and, uh, you haven't taken enough to enough coffee houses. Not. Greg. We got a, <laughs> you failed as a parent. Really too suburban of us. Uh, so, uh, so not only are the different elements, like he's, he's often carrying a guitar and the guitar is usually a different animation style but they all shift and the animator said almost always the different elements of spider punk are all at a different frame rate what so eat your heart out james cameron so uh, like within like just again the artistry of that and you know big picture made a big deal of saying people wrote this movie off when it got delayed but it's like this is what a delay gets you like that level of craftsmanship and artistry so um Absolutely mind blowing that they would use that level of detail. And it's not like I'm sitting there in the theater saying like, oh, my goodness, the different frame rate on his spiked shoes is blah, blah. But you sit there and you're like, it feels wholly realized. It reinforces the vision in the story. And you're just like, I've never seen something like this ever before. <laughs> and it and it gives him such personality, too. So he's my pick for my my favorite favorite kind of like minor character that pops up. And or favorite Spider-Man variant because I, I like you know I love Miles Miles and Gwen so I, I'm not really counting them in the running but yeah after them like he's he's definitely my favorite but I think he's written so well because like just his his like it's very tongue in cheek about someone who would be a punk rocker like him and being really anti-establishment and like he just his like his like side comments during the big fights and how he sort of like. He's like, I respect that baby. Like, you know, <laughs> they're, go- they're going against the establishment. And it's like, I don't know. It's just, it was just so fun. So funny. Uh, but I think the animation style, like you were saying, really helps with his characterization because it is 
you know, it is so different than everything else that we see in the movie. And it's like, you know, really gives him an an energy that the other spider heroes don't have. And I like, I like, I also really liked how he also, he always seemed like a cutout Mm, kind of next to everybody, but he didn't stick out in a bad way. You know what I mean? Like it like made sense. Like he made sense standing there somehow. Yeah. And I don't know how they managed to achieve that, but it's like, yeah, that the fact that he's just basically like a paper cutout, but he's like standing next to everybody else. who's like a somewhat more traditional CG animation and it looks fine. (laughs) It's like mind blowing. Yeah. Well, like it makes me think of when uh, we were kids who framed Roger Rabbit and like when you watch that movie as the age I saw it at, which was probably too young, if I'm being honest, but like it was like. I didn't understand why everybody was like, this is amazing. I'm like, why? Like, you're amazed that Roger Rabbit is holding a frying pan like that. Like, why are you amazed about that? Like, he's Roger Rabbit. He can pick up a frying pan. Um, And then, you know, as an adult, you're like, oh, my God, how'd they do this? And there's a lot of trickery there. And this is like, again, another level of that. It's like, I don't understand how they achieve that. But to give it somehow unity in its chaos is a really difficult design flaw because because it's very easy to imagine how this could all go wrong and you're just like it's too busy and i feel seasick or whatever um but in, and also just to the point of my son it's like yeah my son would if he were on mic he would say spider punk was his favorite too and he couldn't articulate anything we just articulated you know my favorite spider punk joke was when the sinkhole opens up and starts sucking in the universe and somebody's like what is that he said it's a metaphor for capitalism <laughs> and my son was like what does that mean and i was like oh god <laughs> like like sit down I, I need to call our, our grad school friend brent to bust out uh das capital uh for him but it was like it yet totally works like my son still walked out of that being like he's the coolest one i want to get that action figure even though he didn't understand half of who his character yeah and again i can't say enough good about the screenplay for this movie because they seed in his character before he ever arrives on screen right like they're like they're constantly mentioning hobie and sort of building up his and miles is like who's this guy like wait and he's like asking all these sort of jealous questions about him and like and like we get these little bits of detail about the oh like he's clearly someone who's cool because ever the way of everyone talks about him and and mentions him and then he kind of so kind of builds up his reputation and then when we finally meet him and then like he takes off his mask and then somebody says he's even cooler without his mask yeah, on. it's miles he's like how are you even cooler without your mask on and, right right yeah, yeah. It, it and, is. like all of yeah. that really works towards building his character in a, in a in a way that i love i think yeah the the capitalism joke and the the i respect that baby joke T- taking a crap on the establishment. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Because <laughs> it's that's when she fills right. her diaper. Um, See, this is the benefit of you seeing it twice. So you remember all that yeah. exact wording. <laughs> well, let me just put in a, a plug. Um, the Spider Punk comic is really cool. I, I can't pretend I'm some old school person who found it. Um, actually, our, our mutual friend, Director Benick, just handed it to me uh, a couple weeks ago. And it's got not only like a, a fun punk universe, but um, a lot of other Marvel heroes pop in. So you get to see who like what is captain america in a punk universe and things oh like nice that. It's, it's super fun so i love recommended. it my spider punk story is when we went to WonderCon. uh my my son was wearing a spider-man hoodie he actually was wearing a porg costume so he was like but he had he had the hood up and the and zipped up so it looked like porg spider like so he could fit right <laughs> in in spider-verse as yeah, a porg, totally. porg <laughs> version of spider-man and um i love to see that <laughs> version of the last jedi crossed over with spider-verse um <laughs> But uh, there was someone cosplaying as Spider-Punk and had a bunch of stickers and was like, 
respect kid and then like handed him just handed him the sticker <laughs> and so he still has it in his room because he's oh, a, yeah awesome. he's a big he's a big spider-man fan spider-man uh fist bumped him at disneyland at um, california adventure that's amazing i had to like pick him up and run to catch up <laughs> with him because we weren't like at the we weren't really at the front of the crowd and so we had to be <laughs> He was like, Mom, Mom, Spider-Man. I had to like be like, okay, I'm sure I knocked somebody over at some point and I felt really bad about it. But I was like, we got to get him. We got to get him to the front. And I basically plopped him down in the one empty space just as the guy, the Spider-Man is going by. And he was yeah. like, he was like, I like Ooh. your shoes because he had Spider-Man shoes on at the time and fist bumped him. And it was a great oh. moment. So I'm glad I I'm <laughs> apologize to whoever, whoever I bowled over when I did that. But I did a, that at Galaxy's Edge to get my son up next to Ray and Vi, who were standing by the Falcon. Except when we got to the front, I then threw my kid aside and stood there myself talking to them. So, <laughs> so you win the parenting award on this podcast. It's, it's on brand. It's on brand, Greg. I love it. Um, okay. So so the other thing I really loved about this, this film were, was the themes. And actually, since you had flagged this as like a rhetorical thing we could talk about, maybe maybe we'll we'll shift over into that segment for a little bit yeah. and then come back out. PT and I really enjoyed talking about the rhetorical situation in the context of Can and kind of people's reactions to uh, the Dial of Destiny premiere, among other things. And so, yeah, this is a new segment. I think we're going to keep trying. Um, so, <laughs> you know, especially since we have the luxury of... Greg is also an educator, also has training in rhetoric and composition. So this, this fits in fits in perfectly. So one thing that we had talked about for this section was how well the themes of the film are introduced. So Greg, I'm going to hand it over to you. Do you want to talk, give us a little bit of context about how that plugs into rhetoric or like what's what or to the class that you teach? Yeah, so I uh, I am director of writing programs here at a university just outside Boston, and um, when we teach our uh, we have a two course sequence, and our lower level or the introductory course is kind of all different genres of writing. And so the first one we ask students to do is write a piece of narrative writing because this is something you need to get used to doing if you're arriving at college. You're going to be asked to do narrative, and we want to make sure they kind of flex those muscles because most of them haven't had to write a story story in a really long time. And it's not that they're going to write you know lots of them in college, but if you're an education student and you're going to be you know writing up journals or, uh, you know, reports on your classroom experience, you got to know how to write a good narrative. So one of the things I struggle with my students is they don't understand how to introduce a theme well. And I do not blame them, which is why I say that so strongly. I blame crappy stories they read all the time, right? Um, you know, one that stood out to me a long time ago, this is a dated reference at this point, but it was like The Imitation Game um, was one of those movies where I, I'm just going to throw it under the bus. It wasn't a very good movie. Um, it took a really interesting historical story and just like made it the most bland version of it. And like there is a theme in that movie that's like sometimes the people nobody expects are the one that changed the world. And the only way the filmmakers could figure out how to introduce that theme is to say it seven times. And by mm -hmm. like the third time, you're like, why nobody talks like this? Nobody would actually be saying this ever once. And now this is the seventh person in this movie who wants to say this to them. So um, I think it's it's good to think about when you have a, a narrative, you know, the idea behind sharing a story is to share a theme, right? It's not to solve a theme or, or end a conversation about a theme, but it's to say something unique to your voice and your position. And I love being the writing instructor because I can say that to my students. I can say, you need to be subtle and interesting, say something new and unique and invite meditation 
go and i it's really hard and no so <laughs> i don't have to do that i just have to grade how well they did it um you know this didn't move me a minus uh so uh but i think it's worth thinking about in general but it particularly in the context of a film like this that could be you know animation is not just for children Guillermo del Toro is telling us that somewhere right now. But I think this is a film that balances between its audiences of of kids and adults. So how do you introduce themes and how do you do that well so that you walk away with a theme, but that you're not feeling like they hit you over the head 10 times? Because the answer is not, let me tell you about a time when I judged a book by its cover and learned I was wrong or something like that. Like, how do you actually do it? So, um, so I, I'll introduce one theme and then, then maybe see if you pick this up as a theme and, and then we can talk about how they achieved it. So there was a, a real lesson to me here or a real message about the idea, you know, in, in cliche terms, we say wanting to have it all, right? Like being able to do this. And this is a common theme to Spider-Man. You shouted out mm-hmm. Spider-Man to the Tobey Maguire one, which is a Spider-Man no more story, which is one of the times Peter Parker tries to do everything and fails at all of it. So he has to leave one piece of himself out of the mix and then he's able to succeed. He can be a good pizza delivery man or, or whatever uh, it is. And so I thought here, this took a familiar Spider-Man theme and really changed it. And so we're seeing from, uh, from the beginning uh, from Gwen's piece at the, the very opening. And then the, the section of miles Morales, essentially before the spider verse intervenes again, a real kind of meditation on how we are all, but particularly teenagers are asked to do it all at one time. And whether you can really successfully do that or not. And I thought that was really fun. And then, echoed later without ever making it a direct parallel. But you see another conflict arise and you're like, oh, that's that same theme. He's trying to have it all again, but he can't or what have you. Yeah. And I think that one other sign of when you like a sign that you a film or a story has introduced its themes well and not heavy handedly is when they have that climactic moment the one time the theme actually is articulated explicitly, right? And then yes. it punctuates it. So I think with the theme you're talking about, for me, it was, which I can't believe we've gotten this far. We haven't mentioned Oscar Isaac, um, <laughs> who I love. I should have said he, Miguel O'Hara was my favorite uh, Spider variant. I think Unbelievably he, good performance. So, he's yes, so good. Agree. So good. Yeah. I th- and I, I really bought, sorry, this is going to be a tangent about, about Miguel <laughs> O'Hara. Um, I really believed that he was at one point a good Spider-Man who had been mm. so hardened by tragedy. I think that, and they do that in such, so efficiently too, like that, like with the, the flashbacks and kind of him, him it's a com- combination of exposition to miles. Right. But then also we get the flashbacks. So it's really fleshing out his character. And yeah, I thought Oscar Isaac's voice performance that it was incredible um, because it really, yeah, sold the pain to me in a very short amount of time. But I think his, he's the one, I believe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think he's the one who actually says you can't have it all. Yeah. Right. So this is and it, and we're going to dump in a bunch of the plot, but essentially the plot becomes to be a spider person is you have to have a police captain die in your cannon. And so he is the one who says to Miles, like, you can't be Spider-Man and save your dad. Like, that's just impossible. And the whole universe is going to break apart. Yeah, you can't have your can't have your family 
and be a Spider-Man and be a hero. It's what the tragedy is sort of what shapes us, right? I think is the subtext there as well, um, which, you know, it's not, un- not, not uncommon in superhero, not even Spider-Man specifically, like just superhero stories in general, the idea of like, you know, Bat- <laughs> Batman is Batman because as we've seen so many times, his, his, parents, his parents were murdered. Um, oh, that's how. Okay. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Yeah. In case you didn't know that, in case you've never seen a Batman movie. It's those uh, like seven out of eight <laughs> Batman movies. <laughs> and I think in the context of Miles specifically, right, because it's not just that he's leading a double life as a superhero, right? It's like that he's trying to make friends and he's trying to you know, not disappoint his parents. He's trying to also, by the way, get into college, right? Like it's like, he's like really kind of overextended and other, even, even in not just like in a superhero life, but just in general. So I, yeah, I definitely agree. And I think, yeah, the, for me, not kind of, kind of expanding out from the theme you just mentioned to me, the themes were worked in so beautifully because at every level of the plot or kind of every segment of the story, Mm -hmm the themes were kind of consistent, right? So like for me, the big theme was this idea of Miles being excluded or like not feeling like he belongs. Um, Mike, Mike and Oscar, one of my favorite Oscars podcasts, they are very divided on this movie. Mike, I'm going to get, I feel bad now. I'm going to get them mixed up because they go by Mike one and Mike two. (laughs) (laughs) One of, one of the Mikes uh, was really not that, like he enjoyed the film and thought it was good, but was not like high on it. Uh, whereas the other Mike was like, this is the best thing. I can't believe you're not just like screaming off the rooftops about how good this movie is. And the, one of the things they argued over was the monologue that, which is one of my favorite scenes, the monologue Rio has with Miles, where she's basically telling him, she, you know, she doesn't know. And, and the Mike who was defending this said this, so I'm, I don't want to take full credit, but um she has no idea it's dramatic irony for her of like she doesn't know he's spider-man so she doesn't know how much what she's saying applies to what's happening to him but she's like never always you always need to feel loved you always need to feel like like don't feel like you don't belong like don't let other people make you feel like you don't belong right and that's essentially what the you know citadel of spider-man <laughs> yeah and miguel o'hara that's what they're doing they're basically saying like you can't be a part of this you're the anomaly you're gonna mess everything up but then that's also kind of happening like it, that theme trickles down to everything else in the movie right it's like he his friends are leaving him out even at at school he feels like he doesn't belong he's got and i wrote about this in my written review at the long take dot subject subsect dot com if you're listening <laughs> to this uh and you want to know more about this so i won't say too much more because i wrote a lot about it um but this idea that as a a student of color who is coming from a particular background into this like elitist, like, he calls it elitist, but elite school, prestigious school. And then they're talking in his, with his guidance counselor about going to Princeton and just the kind of the, the feeling on the outside of an institution, I feel like, you know, goes from his high school to the college he's going to go to, to this like multi, all the way to the multiverse, right? Like you can see yeah. that that feeling and that experience happening at every level. And I just thought that was so brilliant because again, no one's standing there being like, like, like his, the monologue from Rio, she's just kind of pouring her heart, heart out to him. She's not explicitly being like, it's happening here and it's happening here and it's happening here. It's <laughs> everywhere. People are going to try to exclude you. Right. But we just, it's showing that rather than telling us. And I think to your point, that's, that's the more effective and powerful way to do it. So my sidebar on that is my only complaint about that Rio scene. That scene is beautiful. I did not 
start crying at that scene because I'd cried at the trailer three times. They gave that scene oh. was the initial teaser and it was it's so beautifully written, but I was so mad that it was kind of, and this is going to sound a little rude, but that's all there was to it because the trailer had played it. And that idea of like, I've been taking care of this little boy and he's about to go out into the world and I'm worried the people out there aren't going to care about him. I mean, I, I don't want to play the oh, I'm raising a son card, but like I, that is just a core parent belief, whatever the gender of your child is. And it's like they they take that moment and this goes back to the audience question. I, I wasn't in my seven-year-old's head, but my seven-year-old knows this lesson well too, right? He switched schools one time in his life. He, you know, joins a soccer team and he has to go find his way to belonging in that little group. And I'm sitting there as a dad going like, yes, this is what it feels like to be worried that you're going to be excluded. So not just the levels of plot that you're talking about, but the levels of audience are also mm. kind of all resonant in that moment. Um, I purposely did not read your review yet because I didn't want to spoil our conversation, but I will go back and read it. But I would I would also highlight not just Miles only as a student of color, but Miles as a biracial student. Yes. So that, um, you know, the beauty of the opening of Into the Spider-Verse is they demonstrate what it is like for him already just being who he is he walks through a playground at his old school and there are these class things going on but he slips into spanish he codes switches uh into kind of uh you know urban black uh dynamics as uh, syntax as well and it's like we see miles is like perfect at this right that he mm. can switch between all these registers and so that's like his superpower before he gets bit by the spider and so here we have like what if all of that means you can't actually belong anywhere because you don't fit all those and you know um again to to make it about identity and and growing up it's like it's so beautifully done that it's so specific to who miles is but so universal to what we all experience um and so the last thing I'll say about that in terms of, of theme is it wasn't until the second time that I realized the thesis of the movie is stated. You just don't hear it. So when we we meet Miles fighting the spot and he's late for the meeting with the guidance counselor, he walks into her office as Rachel Dratch, as the boring guidance counselor says. She's so good. You can't. <laughs> yes, she nailed it. She said, you can't have your cake and eat it, too. And as Miles is slipping into that conversation, he goes, unless you buy two cakes. And it's like, that's Miles. That's Miles in a nutshell. Yeah. Like, oh. he buys two cakes. And then later he buys two cakes. And like, it just... Literally two cakes. It all, it, everything we just talk about just re is reinforced. And, you know, again, in the context of the writer's strike, you don't get this if you have an AI write a Spider-Man movie. You don't, you don't get this kind of artistry. It gets to the level of, my highest compliment would be, it starts to feel like, Knives Out or Glass Onion, where it's like so intricately plotted, and that's unnecessary in a Spider-Man, but it makes it like rewatchable and so enjoyable to see it kind of echo in those ways. Yeah, I loved all of that. I think thank you for pulling those together. I think I had forgotten about the two cakes thing. That was <laughs> yeah. perfectly. Um, but I think just the only thing I'll add too is like to you know again bring it back to teaching and rhetoric and composition in my class because you mentioned code switching. I really like that your observation there because that's something I actively teach and talk to my students about. Um, the the class that I teach right now is an advanced writing, but it's a genres class. So we kind of switch, um, you know, basically we talk about how each assignment 
from a job application to, you know, an opinion piece for a newspaper to, you know, a memo to an executive, like how that writers are constantly at being asked to code switch. And at the end of the semester, I sort of pose this question to them in their final portfolio of like, okay, what has been lost in the process of code switching? Mm, What about you? Every time you code switch, like, and every time you've done one of these assignments, what about you has had to be excluded or sort of suppressed or erased and, you know, they have, it's really amazing to see how many different answers they have. Right? Some of them are like, well, English is not my first language. So, you know, just there's a, there's a translation, act of translation when every time I write one of these assignments that where a part of me is kind of missing. And, um, but then there are other students who are like, I don't understand why we have to be so formal when we write our resume, right? That's not, that doesn't represent who I am, right? And that kind of stuff. So, mm. um, so I think, yeah, all that kind of like really, really applies to Miles, right? Cause it's like, this is an identity. These movies are not just about him as Spider Man, they're about him as a person and about him as, as, you know, his identity more holistically, you know, independent of his superhero status. Um, So yeah, awesome. The other thing that sort of rhetorically stuck out to me was some of the, the context surrounding the, the, the criticism of this film. So like at this point, I've absorbed a lot of reviews of, of the second film and the biggest sticking point for people, the thing that makes it between good and great is how they feel about the fact that this is a part one. Um, Mm. And so I think from a word choice perspective, because it's something I spend a lot of time talking with my students about of like to your audience, how is this particular word choice going to register? And the title actually originally included part one, right? It was, I don't know if it was across the Spider-Verse part one, but it had the phrase part one in it. And then they changed it so that we were, this one was across the Spider-Verse. The next one's going to be beyond the Spider-Verse. But lots of people, and you were really a good friend, (laughs) saw this movie before me and then reminded me that it was a part one. So I wouldn't be surprised but there were so many people in the theater who were like, what? (laughs) That sort of to be continued came up and they were really surprised. And so I'm wondering like, what do you think? Do you think that they should have kept the part one in the title so that people weren't kind of having this kind of weird experience where they didn't realize that it was only half. We can talk also about how you feel about it being quote unquote, half a movie. I don't really Mm. agree with that, but like, you know, the fact that it's a to be continued story, like, do you think that would have been that blow would have been softened for some people if they had kept part one in the title? It's all such an interesting mess of questions. And it always makes me wonder who makes this decision. Is it Lord and Miller for lack of they're the producers? So is it the director and the producers and the writers or is it the studio? Um, we are on the eve of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part One, the title that's impossible to put colons in because there's just too many of them. But it's like they made it very clear from the start. This is part one. And I don't think that has diminished enthusiasm for that. So every friend I've talked to, I don't know if I actually asked you this. I had angry people in my screening and every friend I've talked to who went and saw this opening weekend, there were like gasps of not just shock, but anger. Mm. The memorable person in my row yelled, what the F and said, not again. And then when people were like, dude, you okay? He was like, I just went to Fast 10 this morning. (laughs) And so if you don't know, slight spoiler, Fast 10 is half a movie, like even more extreme than than whatever your definition is for this. So there's a lot of anger. So I it made me think of Dune, of course, would be the other example of this, which was called Dune and then said part one on the opening title card 
It made me think of my uh, my stepdad who's passed away, who went to Fellowship of the Ring and was so angry at the end because he had no idea. He, he's not a reader or he wasn't a reader. So he had no idea it was part one of three. He was just like three and a half hours and it wasn't the whole movie or that, I don't think Fellowship is that long. Uh, so all of that goes back to, I think the smarter move is to set your expectations clearly. Um, it was a beautiful shock in a lot of ways. I, you know, was sitting there knowing it was not uh, it was a part one in that. I, and I spent the last 20 minutes or so still saying, like, are we about to get a fight to close this out or are we actually going to leave on a cliffhanger? And I could not tell. I kind of lost track on my watch because stupid AMC plays so many previews. I'm like, I know this is two hours and 20 minutes, but like, was it 10 minutes of trailers? Was it 30 minutes of trailers? So, so I kind of lost track of all this. So I still kind of had that same a bit of that shock when it was just kind of cut out. Like that's that's the end on the cliffhanger. Now. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm a giant Star Wars fan, and I would not say you should call Empire Strikes Back part one. Empire Strikes Back is a story. It has unresolved conflicts, and it's and it's fine. This feels a little less complete than Empire to me, but I do still think, like, I'm going to buy this Blu-ray. I'm going to watch it all. Like, I can see sitting down and watching just this because it's a lot of fun, and it's it's an interesting thing. So... I think from a marketing standpoint, I think the smarter move would have been to leave the part one. Um, but I do not agree with the criticism that this is like only half a movie or somehow not finished. It, I, I wouldn't recommend that anybody wait until next March and watch this one then and then watch it that afternoon or whatever. Like, right. I think this can be your only version of this for a, a year. Yeah, I'm with you too. I'm I'm even more extreme of like, I think people need to calm down about the part one thing. Like when this happened, when with Dune, I was like, have you never seen a trilogy? <laughs> like, or have you never seen like, like, you know, a series of bo- like movies? And I, I don't think I don't, I don't agree with the logic that just because the story is continuing in the next movie, that somehow this movie is lesser. Yeah. Like, I don't really understand that <laughs> argument. And it's like, maybe it speaks to, sort of like a cultural shift where we're like, we're less patient now about stuff. I don't know. But you, I mean, you and I, you know, we, we've been raised on, on literature that like the Dickens that's, that was often serialized. Right. Like, so like, (laughs) and and movies, I think, especially post MCU movies, oftentimes have this, this idea that they're always going to be more, they're always going to continue. So I don't know, but with Dune specifically, I was like, the fact that there's going to be a part two and that we don't yet know how the story resolves to me, that does not take away at all from any of the, my enjoyment of what's considered part one. Oh, you like Dune? I didn't know that from any of your re- readings or, uh, or your podcast. Yeah. I feel like our bingo card is like, we have to praise Dune and make fun of quantum of solace. Like those are the two check marks that every episode so far yeah. has had. Yeah. And uh, ring, uh, the midnight boys on Ringerverse, I think they sort of tried to make the argument that, it's not the same as the Lord of the Rings trilogy because there's still like a, a winding down. But mm. I'd say that there's still a winding down to, in this movie. It's just not good. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. like it's bleak. And I think that's yeah. maybe it's the Empire Strikes Back thing of like people are getting hung up on all the chips are down and then we have to stop. Right. And I think that's fine. I think that's actually good because it gives us somewhere to go in the next movie um, in a way that's really good. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm not on board with this. Like it's only half a movie thing. Yeah. And 
I, I do think you made me think there's an inter- interesting generational question there. Because, I, yeah, I would say our age with Star Wars and Back to the Future. I mean, Back to the Future 2 is very similar in a lot of ways to this this film. It's like it blows out the premise in all these super crazy ways, teaches you these new things, and then leaves you with no characters like about to die, but with some major unanswered questions of how they could resolve this. Um, The other comparison I saw a few times was um, the matrix reloaded, which people have problems with the matrix sequels, which is totally legitimate. But I do think the matrix, the second matrix movie kind of leaves you in a similar spot. And they had uh, the, the foresight to throw a trailer for the third one on because they'd filmed them all together. So if I had a critique for the marketing department, I would have they they didn't have a post credit scene. I would have just thrown a trailer on there. Not mm. not some new scene, not some like oh and Captain Marvel's coming or whatever. <laughs> kind like, of not MCU giving anything stuff. away, but yeah, but just yeah, giving us a just taste like, of what's to come. He, you know, reveal that title like they did in the the mid credits, but just, you know, remind us why we were here and how much fun we had and and what's still to come. I think would've been a a good call from a marketing perspective, but Yeah. If, that also felt like an opening night critique. It was the hardcore nerds who were upset about it. I think the general public is going to be like, awesome. There's a third one. I'll, ca- I'll counter that because I went on a Thursday night. So the and lots of people were dressed as Spider-Man. So <laughs> I, I feel like I had a similar audience and people weren't mad. They A lot of people, there were a lot of gasps, but they were mm. not, they were not mad gasps. Okay. They were That's more good. kind of like, whoa, like, um, and the, and I, we got two rounds of applause. Wow. Uh, so I think, I don't know, that maybe <laughs> it's the IMAX crowd somehow. They're more, they're, they're more easily swayed. Um, uh, it, it, there's a funny thing going on in, in the film industry where, like, I'll use AMC. So I'm a Stubbs member, so that's why I use them as my example. I prefer independent movies, but I can go so often for cheap uh, at AMC. And there's a funny thing where now they, they exploit that by doing – they started it with The Batman where they have, like, a Tuesday night pay us $30 instead of $20, and you, you're there. And that it's diluted the the Thursday night crowd a little bit. And then there's also like Thursday at three o'clock and then Thursday at seven o'clock now. And so it's diluted it a little bit. But there is something going on where I think the the opening night crowd has started to really not be fun for me. But if I go Friday or Saturday, I have a fantastic time. And it's like nice. everybody's too stressed. And and I get that way at Star Wars movies. It's like I'm so anxious about what's gonna happen and what it means for this book and blah, 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 that then it's like, you know, then on Friday it beats people who are like, Yeah, I saw that Spider-Verse one time four years ago. Like, oh, I watched it one time during the pandemic. I'd love to see another one and let's just have a good time. But so that's good to hear that, you know, your crowd was was a little more generous. And and mine might have been just a few kind of really overpowered negative voices and, and mostly positive because it was fantastic. It might have also been because the IMAX IMAX theater is huge. And so it might just been whoever was mad. We, I couldn't hear them because <laughs> they're too far, literally too far away from me. But I don't know. Yeah. But the vibe seemed good. The vibe seemed good. Um, all right. So I think the last thing before we move to Oscars talk, because I do want to make sure we get to that, is the ending. So the we mentioned twists. There weren't there aren't any huge spoilers necessarily from this film. But the big twist at the end, I think, is that Miles confesses that he's Spider-Man to Rio, but then it's the wrong Rio because he's on Earth 42. How did how did that play for you? Did you like did you figure out beforehand that that's what was happening? Because I feel like this is the thing I've heard. Everyone has a different point at which they the light bulb goes goes off that it's like it's not his actual mom. 
Yeah. Uh, another version of two cakes, just in passing. I will mention that, right? He got to have the talk, but not have the talk as well. So I was clued in just before the movie clued you in. It's like I it, I had that revelation. Um, we have a joke going on my Wheel of Time podcast that um, Robert Jordan lays like six clues down and you pick up on number four and you feel so smart for clue five and six. And I think that's how I felt here. It's like I figured it out just before the movie made it really, really obvious. But I'm sure I didn't pick up on clue one. I'm sure I was there. So uh, before the movie revealed it, um, the thing that stood out to me is... Um, they kind of showed you Miles's room uh, one scene before, and there was a very obvious sashimi towel hanging over his bed. And there was a shot of Gwen where you saw that towel. And I was like, oh, that wasn't in Miles's. Oh, wait a minute. And that was my clue that kind of tipped me off. And I think that timing is about right, is that I'd remembered this odd bit of production design. And then it was like, oh, wait and then it's like oh wait so it it was effective to me how about you did you figure it out i did not really figure it out until it was too late and i was like oh what <laughs> and then i felt silly like i was like oh i should have really seen that coming but i think for me the thing i had had figured out earlier was that miles the miles the earth 42 miles was actually the prowler mm. that to me it was like well before we saw that i was yeah. like oh wait but does that mean if this is earth 42 and he's stuck there and his dad, like I, I had pieced it together well mm-hmm. before kind of they revealed that. But the but Rio being not Rio, like in retrospect, like I should have realized because the way she reacts from the get go, I think once he starts talking, seems weird. Like it does is not consistent with the Rio that we know. Yep. <laughs> but I, but I actually I really liked that as like a twist, just to kind of pull as a like regardless of when you figure it out, like when you when they pull that rug out from under you, because there's so much emotional investment in him saying this. And like, it's, there's such, it's so tragic that it's wasted. Yes. Right. Cause he's never, he's never going to get that exact moment. And that even if he does tell his own mom, the same, like a similar thing, it's not going to be the same. Right. Cause he's already kind of expended that emotional energy in a lot of ways. Right. But I, yeah. So I think it is, it is, it's the movie having two kicks too. Yeah. Cause now we get to like, we got to experience what that was like in that climactic, kind of emotional moment for for miles but at the same time they could be like oh never mind like <laughs> wrong mom <Yeah. laughs> right he's gonna have to he like when he gets back to his own earth he's gonna have the same problem we haven't fixed it so so yeah that'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the in the third movie like if he if he, maybe does that mean that he just actually never tells his own mom mm. or does he try to recreate that moment or does it like you know how or does she find out some other way like how do, how do they get around that now without kind of retreading the same ground i think it will be really interesting well and um i do just want to note that i didn't realize how or why like once they explain like of course it read the spider but the the decompression you feel when the avatar spider girl i don't remember if she has a name like betrays Miguel O'Hara a little and sends him anyway like lets the computer finish its its uh process you feel such relief. And then that's why the twist was brilliant to me. It's like you had just had this emotional satisfaction of like, he's back and now he's going to be really at home because he's confessing to his mom. And then that that's kind of the double the the double twist there. I do just want to note, and again, I, I get to say, oh, on a second viewing, um, on a second viewing, what stood out is how often he talks about his dad in that. And then you realize 
far after they leave the apartment that the dad has been killed in this universe that mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and and also just shout out to both the the actors doing the parents um they're phenomenal um the the Brian Tyree Henry as the dad got so many good uh parts in the first movie um you know that's a copy is still like my favorite line <laughs> my favorite joke in that first so, one. It's so um, good uh and so it i thought it was rio's turn to shine and i'm sure you can tell us the actress i've i've forgotten what her name is uh brian tyree henry is just that little bit more extra famous oh no i was too busy looking up looking up the avatar spider <laughs> uh, which is margot kess okay of, aka spider bite which is spider like bite. b-y-t-e yes um very clever Lauren Velez is the mom. And I'm like, where do we, where do I know her from? It says she's from, she was an ugly Betty Dexter. So she's been in a lot of TV. I reckon, like I recognize her voice when I hear her talking, but I can't quite place where we're from. But both those parents give great performances. And so you see across the apartment, it's like pictures of just the two of them, just the, just Rio and miles and so on. And then you're, then the uncle Aaron and then all the revelations that follow. Um, yeah. Uh, great twist and great, cliffhanger right like to know he's glitching and to remember from the first movie that glitching is fatal if you don't get back home like he's in real peril here and then the building of the 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 rival spider team i mean i think part of what you had asked around this question is like where do we go from here i think we're in for like a west side story two spider gangs rumble uh, (gasps) dance fight which would be really really fun and i can't imagine what we'd see visually if that were to happen I really loved the Gwen the Gwen's line at the end where she's like, I didn't want to join a band, so I made my own. And then yeah. and then just that <laughs> paired with them showing and then Spider Pig and or Spider Ham, sorry, I keep calling him Spider Pig. Spider Ham and uh Spider Noir, like all the characters we didn't really see in this movie from the first one are back. I just I was up. that I ate that up. It was great. Uh, I didn't want to join a band. I wanted to start one again with the thematic resonance. That's the punk, right? Like that's what a punk, <laughs> you know? And so it's got all these. So it it is also a really neat trick that the problem is that all of the spiders need to have this canon. Miles says to Gwen early in the movie, we are alike in all the ways that matter. And this is another version. Hobie, Miles, and Gwen are, and this new team are alike in all the ways that matter. They understand what they really can because Spider-Punk abandons the system too, right? He doesn't join the band. He forms his own. So yeah, it's just so great. He leaves his watch with Gwen, right? Like that's, she's, he's the reason that she's able to do multiversal travel again. Yeah. He actually builds her a new watch, oh. I think, because he throws his Miguel O'Hara watch down as he quits. Oh, that's right. And then, uh, well, and, uh, another great joke is Gwen's dad from that reality going like, a guy left this for you. Real piece of work. <laughs> I was like, that is exactly how my dad would say that. Like, real piece of work. You know that guy who has like six aesthetics and seven frame rates going on? Real piece of work. That's <laughs> <laughs> good. Yeah, and I, I love, I mean, I love the way that her storyline resolves too. We haven't even really talked about her, which is, is tragic. Oh, and, and it's a, such a good surprise that this is half a Gwen movie. Yes, really, it really like, is. Not a mile sequel. I just, yeah. I love the extended opening with just her. I was just like, once I realized yeah. that's what was happening, I was like, this is brilliant. I love this. Mm. Um, people are going to be mad about this probably, which I think Van, Van from Midnight Boys, I think is mad about it because he's like, I wanted my own, it to be Miles Morales' movie. But I don't, yeah, I don't, I, I think they can both share the movie. It's fine. Like, and just, and just the fact that, yeah, the, we don't get any credits or like title, a title sequence until that opening storyline with her 
is done, I think is just such a good choice. It's so, yeah. so cinematic. Um, but yeah, her, her resolving, I love again, showing, not telling being really powerful, how they show that she was wrong and that her dad actually did make the right choice. Right. When, she, when, yeah. and, and that then proves that Miles is right. That made like it opens the door for like, oh, maybe Miguel was yep. wrong. Maybe we don't have to preserve these canon events. Like, and we can, you know, there can be more variation and all that kind of stuff. We can have two. We cakes. can have two cakes. This is the theme <laughs> of this podcast. We have two cakes. Um, oh, always with food with us. Uh, so we always find our way to a food metaphor. We've done so. pizza. What was it? A Chex Mix and now cake. We're, we're, yeah, that's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were just, we're planning a birthday yeah. party here. Um, Sounds delicious. So, uh, yeah. And I just want to also throw in with Gwen. Um, I really loved, uh, there were times where it felt like they were building, they, they are building a clear connection. And I know those characters have dated, but I just want to say the simple choice, there's no kiss, there's no, but when they're sitting upside down and she leans over and bumps shoulders with him, I was like, that like instantly transported me to high school when like if a girl had bumped shoulders with me with that kind of love and affection, I would have like swooned and been like, ah, oh, life has meaning now. And yet like it captures all that and yet is very like chaste and like, let's not undermine this friend. It, it was just really a beautiful choice. And, and they they did so well by her character to the point where. I'm like, Haley Steinfeld, let's just keep you here. Let's not worry about Kate Bishop. But she can Ooh, have both. I don't she know. I want two cakes if that's if, the, if I don't want to have to choose between those two characters. I love Kate Bishop. I love I love Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop, I should say. Yeah, she did so great. But yeah, they can she can do both. It's vo- it's voiceover. She can she can be on set yeah. for another Hawkeye movie and then be doing be doing this. Um okay, so I do want to shift into this has been a great conversation, but I do want to end with our Oscars watch. Because we always have one. Sometimes we don't actually have one eye on the Oscars race. <laughs> I've noticed. Um, <laughs> we try to, though. Uh, it's still early in the season. But, you know, this film famously kind of, I think against expectations, I want to say, won, or against a lot of people's predictions, won the best animated feature uh, for Into the Spider-Verse. Mm. And so my question is, like, how likely is it that lightning will strike twice and that it will do that. Is this one also kind of in the same conversation? Do you think? I think it's going to be nominated without a question. Mm. Um, The real question in my mind is the sequel question, right? That how much are, how much are people going to embrace this as its own original unique work of art or how much are they going to say, no, I've seen that. I've seen them do that already. And so I think it's a really hard question with this. If, if only animators got to vote, um, and as I understand Academy rules, the animators will pick the nominees, but then everybody gets to pick the winner in the category. I think it's that animation just recently opened up to all Academy voters, whereas before it might have been. Mm. And it's also saying animators is like my way to hand wave all that. I, I don't know who they count in that category, but if people who really know animation get to pick the nominees, this will be nominated guaranteed. Whether the whole Academy will vote for this, I think is a harder question. Um, if it continues to kill at the box office, that will certainly help its chances. I look back at not into the Spider-Verse, but to Mitchell's versus the machine, which was kind of the follow up from the same Sony animation team using a lot of the kind of technology and stylistic choices of that. 
I I honestly think they should have won that year. Um, but the phenomenon that was we don't talk about Bruno slash Encanto, but in that order, mm. kind of wiped it out. So I I think looking at those two precedents, I think it's got a hard road. Now, do you think anything else is gonna challenge it though? Like what I I mean, I don't think Mario challenges it in terms of Academy Award chances, Oscar chances, but I love your. I think that it, it, this is the question. I think it really hinges on how strong the category is all overall and what else gets nominated. So, and a lot of it is question mark because we haven't seen the Miyazaki movie. How do I live? You know, that's, I mean, a lot of people are like assuming that's going to be good. I mean, I want it to be good, obviously more than most things in the world. Uh, But, but, uh, (laughs) you know, if that is, also really strong and it's Miyazaki and supposedly though I don't believe it anymore his last movie or whatever right um he's come out of retirement before so <laughs> I don't I'm, I'm not paying attention to that discourse but if that movie is super good then this has a problem but if that movie's just okay and it might get a nominate you know it depends on what gets a token nomination and then but isn't really in contention versus if over like if there are a lot of contenders because i'm trying to think of what else what if, yeah I, I agree that if super mario gets gets nominated that's just going to be a hey you made a lot of money good job and not necessarily like be, go beyond being nominated um but if there's i'm trying to think what else do you think is in contention i guess well so we have a pixar movie that is not looking like one of their really best ones. And I don't think they're the powerhouse that they once were the, the kind of automatic win. Um, I think last year's what now I'm confusing with Captain America, Disney animation did, was it strange new world, not brave new world last year, strange. And I think that fell into the category of just too weird for anybody to care. And I'm worried elementals is going to fall into that category. It was the last the last screening at Cannes, so a lot of people didn't oh. see it then. Or like, yeah. you know, usually people say like, oh, because everyone leaves to travel home before the last day, that like not a lot of people use that slot is not reserved for something that's really good. So, uh, but some people really liked it. Uh, most people, it's it's getting kind of harsh reviews. Again, it's the same problem as yeah. Dial of Destiny is like how much of that is just a contextual misunderstanding as opposed to like the actual quality of the film um but i think yeah it could go either way i i'm thinking it's less likely that it's going to be competition for Mm. for this for spider-verse uh at this point so yeah and and, like disney's coming out with disney wish which is you know so far doesn't have a lot of buzz for it but could so that's that's a sleeper dark like a dark horse contender potentially if that in fact has kind of the same popularity as Encanto or something like that. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely up for grabs. And I think if there's nothing that really emerges as competition, it it could definitely win. And some people are even talking about it getting nominated for Best Picture. I think that's a little premature. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah I think we need since, to calm down. Yeah. I'd, since <laughs> they have the animated category, I just think it's really... I mean, if Pinocchio couldn't do it... So the, what I was going to say before that comment, which is related, is the lane that feels open is the art house animation. Oh, this is too artistic to ignore. And I think if something fills that lane, could it be Miyazaki? It could be. But, you know, I think he's such a known brand that a lot of people would say 
that's there. I have no idea if there's a a Wolf Walkers or or a Pinocchio mm-hmm. out there somewhere, right? Like right. that has that kind of art house appeal, but um, says something a little more profound. Um, something like that. Um, you know, the second Wes Anderson movie, I think a lot of people thought was stop motion for a while, but now it sounds like it is live action. So, oh, so it's not like Fantastic Mr. Fox. It is not. It is another Roald Dahl adaptation, but I believe it is not animated at all. But again, it's every once in a while I wake up at like two thirty in the morning, you know, and I'm like, there's another Wes Anderson movie. It's like (laughs) nobody believes that we actually are talking about this in real life. I and I my biggest suspicion is they just push it till next year, whether however Asteroid City does. I think they don't want to be in the shadow of either a flop or a hit Wes Anderson. They want to wait and give it its room so i quickly googled contend animated feature contenders for 2024 and there's a reddit post that i found that lists all the things we're talking about and then chicken run dawn of the nugget oh i forgot there's an ardman yeah (laughs) oh man so uh, i mean but like I don't know if a chicken run sequel is really like in contention. You know what I mean? Like yeah. as, as as fun as it could be, and oh. and I love Ardman and all the things that they totally do, and I love, love the I, first chicken run. Yeah. But nobody's been clamoring for a f- prequel, if that's the it is, right. or or it might be a, a sequel. But yeah, uh, there's also I, the 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 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. I don't remember when oh. that's coming out. Uh, that's in August. So uh, again, to me, you wouldn't nominate that over this because that looks like, hey, what if we did Ninja Turtles, but like Spider-Verse? So however good it is, I think it's it's going to be seen as lesser to this. So yeah, so I um, think it's looking good. Yeah. Um, other categories potentially I've heard uh, might be original song, right? Since the music in this is so strong as it was with the first one. Um, and but then also score everyone's raving I, and I agree I totally agree I love the music mm. in this like the score is so powerful and I think does really wonderful things it, it is like a long parallel with the animation style in terms of like just it's it's beauty but then also kind of uh, furthering the storyline so so th- those are potentials I think I think yeah saying best picture is is over overreaching I yep. don't think I don't think if we look at the Academy as a whole, people are going to be like, yes, like let's nominate <laughs> a Spider-Man movie for best picture. They didn't do that with No Way Home. I think this is better than No Way Home, but yeah, um, I think that it's still going to have that barrier. To I'll just say uh, in terms of music, I'm just going to, I don't know if this is a hot take. I didn't think the, I thought the score was fantastic. I didn't like the, the uh, music nearly as much. Like I have spun the soundtrack a few times this week. I will still listen to the first Spider-Man soundtrack a lot. And this didn't have a what's up danger moment that really showcased a song. Like if there was okay, another moment. Like that. Yeah. So yeah. I, I totally agree with you that like, I mean, I actually really, I, I haven't listened to it again after I've seen the movie enough probably to say for sure. But I, I, the thing I will say in terms of what I like better, but like what I will say is that no individual tracks are sticking out in the way that they did for the first one. Like yeah. you're saying, like, like I can name a bunch of song, individual songs like Sunflower and, and What's Up Danger that are just like really stick out out of all the other music in the film. Whereas this one, I feel like overall, I probably really like it, but I can't. There's not an like as iconic needle drops yes. potentially. But yeah, I would have to go back and listen again to, to see for sure. Um, and I'm just going to put in a plug because we're going to change the Oscars, just you and I with our new plan. So they need to they need to ungender the categories as as is well known and well discussed. And the categories, I, I think breakthrough performance needs to be 
a replacement, but I want to put a voice actor, you know, yes. uh, category. Voice voice acting and mocap is becoming such an important part of the industry. And the big picture pointed this out. It's not just that Oscar Isaac is doing the voice. It's that they get a good performance out of him. And same with Issa Rae. It's like, oh, I, I love Issa Rae and I liked hearing her, but it's like, oh, but she actually is putting a little swerve on this. And then you know, I already talked about both the parents, both, you know, Miles and Gwen, like these are really good nuanced performances. Um, I think there should be a voice acting slash motion cap um, category. And why not? I mean, that it's a huge portion of our movie making now. The name it after Andy Serkis and just call it voice acting or mocap. Or like there there must be some term that could include both of those things. It's not I'm not going to it's not going to come to me now. But like, yeah off-screen performance yeah like best off-screen perform. i don't know if that's the right that's not the right word but like something like that that could include both in the same then i think people would go for that because then yeah. you'd have a bigger pool to choose from potentially um but yeah i agree i mean they're not going to add categories they've only taken away categories in the past and made us angry or concerned. <laughs> but I, I would be surprised if they still have actor and actress separated out in five years. And um, there was a really good uh, couple pieces on this recently. Um, one of which talked a lot with the, uh, now I don't want to misgender the actor who uh, plays the, the young, the young performer from the last of us, Bella Ramsey. Yes. And how they are do not consider themselves to be female and do not consider themselves to be an actress and are taking themselves out of contention for the Emmy race. That makes, yeah. And and so uh, Vanity Fair pointed out that the Tonys will probably be the first to move on this issue. But then the Emmys, then the pressure is really going beyond the Oscars to to not just uh, have these old fashioned gender categories. So um, that's the only way I see them adding categories. But I agree. Are they likely to just throw this in? No stunts no should they yes like these are great parts of movie making and, and deserve an award yeah i was gonna say we still don't have a stunt category and people have been asking for that way longer and so yeah, yeah. it's gonna be it's probably gonna be a little while i, I would i would also want to shout out vanity fair because that's that's little girl men i think is where they had a really yeah. good conversation and specifically about how complicated an issue it is right because on the one hand you want actors to feel like their gender identity is being represented or they don't have to be, ex they're not being excluded from the category, the way the categories are set up. But at the same time, historically, if they, if there is no gender divide in the categories, most of the nominations would go to men. Right. Yeah. And so there's, there's a gender equity problem. That's also, in the mix um and so yeah go to vanity fair and they this was a summary of a full investigative piece that interviewed a lot of stakeholders yeah. uh on this it was really I, only the podcast version was really good i can't speak to the article yeah they reference what the interviews from the article in the in the podcast so all right i think we can't end this conversation without hitting on the favorite Easter egg question that was oh, right. in a previous section, but we talked so long about other sections. So I want to hear yours. What was your favorite kind of Easter egg or parallel? Because it was deep, I will say, to give you time to think. I, I think you express, express, expressed this as well, that people would gasp and be like delighted at something. And I'm like, I don't know that one. And I'm like an Uber nerd. And I don't know that. Um, we got the two older live action Spider-Men. We got the 80s cartoon Spider-Man, we got a more recent cartoon of some kind. We got the video game Spider-Man. Like it goes on and on that they included just so, so many. People in my theater were going nuts over the video game stuff. It was hilarious. 
Yeah, I and, uh, I appreciated that they were de- nodding to video games, but having not played those specific video games, I wasn't totally in on the joke. But yeah, people those those played really really well to the point where people were like, "Oh, they're doing the whatever." Like like you, yeah. they actually were identifying a part of the game in the shot. Um, but I think my favorite. First of all, I was most surprised by the mixing in of live action. I think mm-hmm. I didn't think they were going to do that. I I liked it for the sort of uh, Roger Rabbit reason that you kind of yeah mentioned earlier i thought that was fun i i probably have to go with donald glover as my as my favorite um just because i was not expecting that in a million years and so if you don't know right if you're like why was donald glover in this movie he is actually appears in i want to say homecoming is that the it's one of the tom holland movies yes it's homecoming sorry it's homecoming. okay uh and he is Aaron Davis, I believe, is the name of the uncle. And that implies they never say the prowler in that scene. I think he's in a parking garage. He's in a parking garage. So he is related to the gang of Michael Keaton's that has been stealing the gear. So it is implied that he's a criminal and that he has a connection to technology, but he is not identified as the prowler. Right. So the implication is he either is and they don't know or he could be the prowler in another film. And so I had totally forgotten about that, honestly. And then when I saw Donald Glover, I remembered and I was like, oh, this is so fun. And so now there are all sorts of questions of like, what does this mean for the MCU? Does this mean that he's coming in in or in the Sony Spider-Man films? If those continue with Tom Holland or with somebody else, like, is he going to actually be the prowler now? Um, but I just thought it was great because he's just kind of sitting there in his little cage being like, hey, what's up? <laughs> And it was totally unexpected. Um, But also, I think Donald Glover, there's some backstory there that also makes it like a really, really fun production Easter egg because Donald Glover, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Well, no, let me take it. Let me take it. Because I can go like 10 more layers than you just went. So, um, so Donald Glover, a million years ago when they were looking to cast, I think it was when they were actually going to cast Andrew Garfield, there were new stories like Sony seeking new Spider-Man and Donald Glover tweeted, why not me? Right. And so there was this huge backlash. I uh, have been a Donald Glover fan since community. And he, in his standup set around that time, he did a whole bit about this because somebody responded to him like, well, what's next? White shaft. And so he had like a riff on like how racist people are on the internet. Um, So this was a thing like he thought, why not me? And so Brian Michael Bendis, who created Miles Morales, essentially said, why not him? Why not make a Spider-Man who looks like Donald Glover and is able to do everything Peter Parker can, but is is that. And so that's where Miles Morales comes from. So in the second season of Community, I swear there's a point to all this. So this all happens after the first season of Community. The second season of Community starts with a montage where all the characters are waking up in their beds and Donald Glover climbs out of he's staying at Chevy Chase's house. uh, Well, Chevy Chase's character's house uh, in this uh, scene. So he climbs out of bed and he's wearing Spider-Man pajamas. And so it's kind of a shout out like, hey, yes, this happened on the Internet. We know this happened on the Internet. I could be Spider-Man. So. I saw the original Into the Spider-Verse in theaters. And when Miles Morales arrives at at Uncle Aaron's apartment, Uncle Aaron is watching that episode of Community. And I was sitting there in the theater going like, I swear to God, he's watching Community. And I'm sitting there going like, there's no way. And then I 
community was a Sony show. So I was like, oh, like it could totally be. And so that was my like fast forward. The first time I got it on Blu-ray, I was like, I got to see, was he watching community that I pick it up? Cause the internet hadn't found it yet. I don't think at that point. And so he was. And so Donald Glover was actually in the first spider verse on TV in this dimension. And so all of that is how he got then the uncle Aaron cameo that you just pointed out. And he says in that one, Oh, I have a nephew like you or something something like that. I have a nephew around your age or something like that to Tom Holland. So that's like, I think it, the speculation is ripe. And now they're saying they they want to do live action Miles Morales. So I think, I think there's a good chance we see Donald Glover doing that. And if nothing else, it's just like super fun. And like, it's for nerdy people like me to be like, Oh my God, community is blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's, that's what I go to these silly movies for. And so I had, that was absolutely my favorite as well. Um, and you know, kudos to Donald Glover, whether it means something bigger or nothing. Like, I think he's somebody who will do a fun joke. And I think, I mean, remember, <laughs> Lord and Miller were supposed to direct him or did direct him and then didn't direct him as Lando. So they're buddies, right? So I, I feel like this was like, let's call him in and let's just have a little fun. And he was game for it. Wow. I, my mind is blown now. First of all, I'm mad at you for not having told me this before right now. <laughs> the spider Into the Spider-Verse came out, what, in 2018? We were friends long before then. So like, yeah. <laughs> what's your excuse? Why didn't I know this already, Greg? Um, but, but no, that is that is amazing. That is way deeper than I, I even assumed it went. Um, but yeah. And even, I have not even, seen anybody bring in the community in the first Spider-Verse when they're, ex- you know, there are like 20 million comic book articles, comicbook.com articles about why is Donald Glover in? And so no, everybody misses that community piece. So this is a long take exclusive. I was going to say, maybe you shouldn't have spent it here. Like you should. <laughs> Could have my you own should. clickbait video. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um but yeah that is that's just i'm still i'm still processing that that's mind-blowing and all so fun and so fun even if donald glover is just like a like a producer or like a like a writer in the writer's room for something miles morales related down the road i think that you know and he does he also he did play miles morales in a cartoon uh so he was the first person to ever voice miles morales that is where i was gonna go because i was like i that is that that was my starting point for like this is how donald glover is involved but you just like blew that out of the water (laughs) (laughs) with your your thing now i want to go back and watch that scene from into the spider-verse um well greg this was not just for the the bomb you just dropped the knowledge (laughs) bomb uh the the easter egg the the easter eggs to end all easter eggs because it includes community um but you know for for that and so many other reasons it was so worth it to have you on to talk about this movie and where can folks find you on the internet plug all the things take as much time as you want to plug all the things you're doing all right. Uh, people uh, should. Uh, so actually, in the context of this movie, um, I rejoined uh, uh, the blogging world by starting up my Substack, And I wrote a blog entry this spring about why multiverse storytelling right now. And um, I actually haven't read it since I watched this movie, but it'd be really interesting. I don't think I even uh, foresaw Across the Spider-Verse as a part. I think I talked about The Flash coming, but not this. So um that might be of interest if people are there. That's at ioncanon.substack.com or ioncanon.com, which is E-Y-E-O-N-C-A-N-O-N. Now that I'm not teaching during this summer, I'm determined to get a few more blog entries up, but I will never be as prolific as you. I'm just going <laughs> to stick to like one every couple months uh, whenever something strikes me. Um, and maybe I should write up that Donald Glover thing. Uh, but uh, if you enjoy my podcasting skills, you can join me on uh, Through the Glass Columns, which is a Wheel of Time 
Time podcast. I know nothing about Wheel of Time, although I'm starting to know a bit more. Um, and we read a few chapters every week and uh, discuss them. So if you are curious about Wheel of Time, you could use us as your online book club and start uh, the the series of books at the beginning or at any book if you're rereading and um, listen to us talk about it, uh, a couple chapters every week. Um, and we are also covering the first season of the TV show this summer in anticipation of the second season of the Amazon show uh, returning this fall. I also review Star Wars shows on the Rebel Base Card feed. We're kind of on hiatus, um, and but we will be back for Ahsoka, I'm told. Um, and I did just, uh, the Rebel Base Card feed, uh, we did a card break this uh, week, which I've never participated in before. But if your children like watching people on the internet open uh, blind bags, uh, this is essentially that, but with trading cards. And it was it was fun, and it w- we kind of played around with technology to have good uh you know, quality pictures of what we were opening in our pack. So, um, so that's a really different thing, but it was really fun to participate in. And then last but not least, uh, Jen and I were just on the nostalgia test. Uh, I'll pass it to you on that and you can explain, uh, that appearance that we made. Sure. The nostalgia test takes things from pop culture past and sort of puts them to the test. Do they hold up or are they just kind of nostalgic and it's a super fun podcast that you should definitely check out if you if you like what we talk about you're definitely going to like what they talk about uh, we were on to talk about indiana jones and the raiders of the lost ark <gasps> how dare you raiders of the lost ark raiders of the lost ark is the name of the film i heard oh, you <laughs> I'll, I'll fight i'll have that fight with anybody anywhere on the internet forever i'm not in for the rename <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. We share a lot of our Harrison Ford love and talk about kind of what makes the the character of Indy enduring and all the things that we love, but all the things that maybe are kind of silly in in that film. So it's, yeah, make sure you check that out when it hits. I'll I'll post about it when it hits the all their podcatchers, but it should be soon. And you can find me on Instagram at Subchokchai, S-O-P-C-H-O-C-K. C-H-A-I, and on Letterboxd at Qui-Gon Jen. Though I haven't even logged my Letterboxd review for this movie, so I, <laughs> I haven't gotten back in the groove of, of log, like like going on Letterboxd immediately after I watch something. Mm. I need to start doing that again. What else are the credits for when you're sitting in the theater waiting for that uh, potential post-credit scene? You log it on Letterboxd. That's what you do. That's a good point. I was, I was marveling my popcorn bucket, I think it's <laughs> <laughs> what is um all right thanks again greg and thanks everyone for listening thank you for listening you can follow the long take on substack at thelongtake.substack.com subscribe for free to receive reviews of films with oscar buzz as well as new films and series from pop franchises like star wars and marvel 